David, do you feel like you have to generate everything? <laughs> uh, I feel like I have to go to sleep. <laughs> My Men thing in is... general just rub me the wrong way. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so why are you on this podcast? Mm-mm. I still like attention. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we just received our first question uh, of someone while they were having intercourse. <laughs> I know. I, I was so distracted. I was like, yeah, that was really God, distracting. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> the big hormone enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, uh, sexual self-prez, pulled a five-wing, four five eight tri-fix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-prez, sexual, nine with a one, nine seven four tri-fix. What up, it's Emika, I'm an eight-wing seven, sexual self-prez, with eight five four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy, I am a self-prez social three-wing four with a If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. Welcome to Big Hormone, Eddie Graham. We are uh, pausing our journey through David's Baba Chakra of instincts and going to take some questions and answers on my book, which you should buy. You could basically look up most uh, e-retailers. Uh, instinctual drives the enneagram and uh before we get into it um david has a trifix booklet book guide visual guide and i wrote an intro for it and it's like a very unique uh take on an exploration of the trifix combinations it's mostly visual and with poetic and archetypal evocations of the trifix it really gives you uh an energetic sense of the trifix uh, in a way that no other Enneagram material approaches the Enneagram. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about it, David. I think I'm blank again, probably. <laughs> Where do we buy it? <laughs> you can buy it on uh, Enneagrammer.com, and you can buy it on Enneasite.com. Cool. On, and then on product pages, yeah. And then uh, Emika and I are both going to be on the Enneagram Global Summit it's coming up, so we're just announcing it now. Uh, in a future episode, we'll have links to sign up for it. And if you sign up through our links, uh, we will make a little bit of pathetic money. So please do that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be doing Instincts with Mario Sakura, and I'm doing a little bit on Type 5, and Emma is doing Type 8. Yeah, and Enneagramma.com, uh, we still have, uh, we have Dark Arts Academy videos every week on typing celebrities. For those of you who've been wanting to learn how to type and to learn how to make distinctions and recognize them in real time, you can uh, sign up $19 a month at anygrammar.com. All right. right. Let's get into it. So I was very intrigued by the sections of the book that talked about the loss of essential qualities as an important element in the formation of the type structure. Uh, I'm wondering what might it look like to face a situation that exemplifies or symbolizes the loss of one's essential quality. So a scenario in which a type faces an inescapable or traumatizing situation um, that serves as a reminder or example of that specific loss of that corresponding essential quality. 
I'm wondering if any of you have experienced this and if there's potential for self-awareness and growth stemming from that sort of direct experience, whether it's in the moment or in hindsight or reflection, or if that sort of experience is just too overwhelming and traumatizing um, for the psyche to process it or use it in any meaningful way. That's a very good question. Starting off strong. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, one thing I would say, so for, for people listening, uh, a lot of my book is about essence and the loss of essence and the tension or relationship between essence and personality. And if you're not familiar with other things we've done or not familiar with the book, I go in to describe what uh, essence is from my point of view and how the loss of it impacts the type and how instinct is related to the loss of essence. And in short, these qualities of essence, these qualities of our, the texture and geography of our consciousness uh, that show up as nine distinct qualities organized around the Enneagram. When we uh, become identified with our personality and identified with our instinctual drives, we lose touch with them and we suffer. And we suffer in the style of our type's passion those have the names of like sloth and lust and deceit and envy, these kind of things. They come from the literally the tradition of the seven deadly sins. Before there was seven, there was at least eight, maybe nine, uh, whole thing. But anyway, that's the, the, qual the quality of suffering. And, and something to note that's really important uh, about the passions, passion from the word pathos, which means suffering or disease, is that even when we feel good, like when we're feeling narcissistically good or good about our personalities, uh, we are still actually suffering from the point of view of essence. We're still in the passion. So um, like envy, oh, I want to be unique and I'm frustrated with everything and I want everything, I want to be special and everything's just de degrading. Uh, and then sometimes I feel special or I feel whatever. And if it's, if it's like a win that builds up my personality, it's still envy, it's still suffering. So we always think of envy and lust and all these passions as, as, negative emotional states they're negative in the sense that they can be they can feel good but they are not uh they're based on a severance or lack of connection to essence so that being said we are always every situation to one degree or another does represent the loss of our essential quality uh but more to your question i think that there are certain circumstances or dynamics that really like rip the uh, wound open. And I've been speaking for a bit, so I don't know if anybody wants to share anything, but I've got some examples for myself. Can you translate what she's asking, basically? <laughs> I think what she's asking is, are, is there a situation that exemplifies the loss of the essential quality for us, like in a very clear and specific way? I think that's what she's asking. Yeah, okay. Does that sound right to... Yeah, it, that, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and you're saying that you know all of existence is pretty much a loss of essential quality. Yeah, that our just being in our personality and the way we what we're aiming for through our personality is the reaction basically to loss of essence. Because uh, okay. like if we were in touch with essence, there wouldn't be much to do. I mean, there would be. We'd still do everything instinctual, but inside it, we wouldn't be. You could say we would be inhabiting impartial presence mm -hmm. within. And so, but I do think that there are specific wounds and specific circumstances that really bring our wound to the surface. And I, I think that's kind of what she's asking for. Mm -hmm. 
That's my understanding of it. So is one thing to do to um, give a brief uh, description again of a couple of us or all of us, our, our passion, and maybe that recalls something for each of us or something? Or I could work. Yeah, that would be helpful. I mean, speaking, I mean, it's kind of like, how do I balance being uh, very personal while also speaking on a podcast? But uh, I mean, I'm a sexual four and I'm looking to find essential depth, a sense of something that is like, you know, mysterious and unique and beneath everything. And, you know, like when we're really present, we can contact the depth, the sense of things being saturated and meaningful and and coming from like a saturated by an unknown source that is ever present. And I think that's the core of type four. Uh, but through my personality, I feel like I'm going to get that sense of depth and specialness by pushing things away, by separating from things. And so when I do that through the sexual instinct, I'm looking for uh, a sexual connection and an attraction and a fusion, uh, sexual fusion that is separate from everything else that is more special than everything else. And I want to be the only fucking one ever. And I want to find my only one. And so like, I, you know, I've talked on this pod before about uh, my lifelong soulmate bullshit and mm way that's played out in my life and the the kind of like way as a hexhead boy that I've through that lens is like been blind to certain things and I don't know experienced a lot of loss around it and realizing how much I was structuring my life to be this thing in a way that uh was like oh, pushed away from everything else and so I don't want to get too specific but it's I mean it's like it's an ongoing struggle for me like, it's like I have it and there's all these fears that I don't have it. And all that, that creates all this pattern of reactivity. In me. So like with sloth, can you uh, define sloth? Yeah. So sloth is the passion of the nine. And it's not like I'm lazy. It can be. But it mostly like what sloth really is, is a sense that my presence, my active participation and will in my own life is not that important. My preferences, my who and what I am to show up fully as what I am is not that important or necessary or needed. So in order to attach and adapt, I kind of delete parts of myself. I think of sloth as inner fragmentation. So like uh, nines can be really active people. They can be really um, busy people, but there's a certain way that like, I'm not all here because I don't feel like I can be. So much of what people attribute to four is, is nine is the sense of like, I, I don't feel my own significance, my importance, my identity. Well, that's uh, my life story. <laughs> so, right. yeah, um, kind of not being able to grasp onto um, how, how people are holding me as important in their own minds or beings and kind of not believing in it. And, um, yeah, I don't know that I can that I've got like a specific uh, several events or circumstances that, you know, necessarily highlight it. Um, I think it also combines with the social blind piece too, where there's that <clears throat> kind of deleting yourself as having basic human needs in a certain way around uh, connection and relationship and so forth. And so I'm kind of 
uh, yeah, just deleting myself a lot um, and not understanding my impact and not seeing it. And yeah, and if I get a sense of it, I can't, uh, you know, it's like sand going through my fingers. I can't hold on to it. Yeah, well said. Yeah, that, I mean, the self-deletion thing, I was, nines don't even see how much they're they're self-deleting and sort of, it's not about me or it's not, like part of what I think of sloth is, is like settling. Yeah. And with a nine personality, I mean, every, every type is this, but nine most exemplifies like, I'm going to sort of individuate or develop myself just enough so that I'm like efficient, in, efficient in quotes, efficient to getting my basic instinctual needs met. Right. So like with a, like a sexual nine, it's like, I'm, I become a, just a sexual object. Like it's not even a high quality sexual connection. I'll just settle for like being a juicy piece of meat mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, but with self-pres nine, there's like, I'm just going to like focus on like my little world or my little lifestyle or my little whatever. And it's like, it's good enough. Like I can't really ask for more and don't even know if I want more. And on the flip side of that, uh, the essential quality for eight is power and seeking kind of uh, intense sense of aliveness in, for me as a sexual eight in the sexual, in attraction chemistry. And so I've talked quite a bit on this pod about all my, dating struggles and the kind of culmination of a lot of that was the soul intercourse series that we had where I, I realized certain things about um, the way I was approaching romantic relationships. And basically I had to learn to trust chemistry developing on its own outside of my own influence or ability to steer things. Cause as an eight it's sort of like, I got to you know, you got to make things happen and so sort of making the chemistry happen. And so I had to step back and learn to that there was already power or aliveness in um, the chemistry that I was experiencing. I didn't have to try to generate it. And uh, so it's, I mean, of course, it's a constant struggle. A personality is always going to want to kick in. It's like, I got to, this is not enough. Like, that's the kind of mm-hmm. internal message that I always have this isn't enough that there's another level to get to. And I think I had to, you know, just looking at myself this year or realizing or really seeing myself, seeing how much impact I already have on everything around me. Like that's part of the, the eight thing mm-hmm. is not really seeing how large of a, a blast radius that you have, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so, yeah, I think it, it's an, it's an ever growing process of um, sort of relaxing that personality mechanism of I got to push, I got to push that there's more, there's more. And, you know, re- recognizing that, you know, things, things are, there is already aliveness in this moment. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I told myself this a long time ago that I never have to, once I realized like what eightness meant is that I never have to consciously try to escalate. Like it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't, I should never consciously try to like make that happen because I'm already unconsciously doing so much of it. <laughs> yeah. Nancy. Mm. Uh, Ready to what? bleed? No. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> no, I have no blood. It's ice. Um, <laughs> what is mine? I forgot. What's your what? My Central. passion. Secret. Or- 
deceit or no yeah. va- i mean vanity vanity See, that okay yeah. or you want the essential quality you're looking for essential that, right? quality is value and so like uh the passion which is like when you're present there's an inherent sense that i'm valuable and everything's valuable like you just there's there's a conditionless sense of value that's just that's just there it's a quality of our existence and in, in our presence and our awareness that value is and in uh kabbalah it's um what is it chesed it's like glory i don't know if i'm attributing the right mm-hmm. hebrew name but it's like since it's just like the glory of god it's just like whoa it's just it's just here and so the three loses touch with value because they think that value is conditional on fulfilling certain instinctual goals like my work or being hot or being popular or whatever it might be and i start to chase it through my dominant instinct so we're supposed to talk about times where we haven't felt that or i don't know yeah or or even like i think we're kind of going into like how that our ego thinks we will restore that essential experience too hmm um i mean i'm always it's a little hard to like pinpoint for me because or i guess probably for everybody because it's like you know everything i do revolves around creating myself into a valuable human Mm -hmm. i mean i have to create value from everything i do like and and look how i guess it like i have to find some way that it is valuable either i find like a niche group of people that find it valuable or um like i believe there's something big that can come out of it or i think you know it's a it's a good conversation starter when i'm talking to people i can kind of you know drop little oh well i do this um kind of tidbits with everything going on with school recently it's been like really pushing up against that because it's like um I'm not getting uh, easy yeses into the schools that I want to go into. I'm not getting no's, but I'm not getting easy yeses. And so it's really pushing up against like, oh, see, no one thinks you're valuable enough to go there kind of thing. So it's like it <laughs> it controls my life. I hate it. What's a, can you imagine um, the quality of being valuable without doing that nope. just you have okay no nope. <laughs> i guess yeah. that's i don't the thing, yeah i don't it? That's it. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know of a way to uh i mean there is no value in just not yeah how, you can't how would you, you can't just you can't just be no you you as a although i view other humans that's the funny part i view other humans as innately valuable mm-hmm. but i don't view myself as innately valuable well, yeah. no one has any value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as an assertive type, I can relate to that thing where it's like, if you're not making things happen, then nothing's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. So, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> so what's it is... what's the fucking point? <laughs> right, if you're not creating it, if you're not generating it, if you're not steering it, then it, this, this fear is that if you're not doing, then nothing's happening. And so to allow things to be mm-hmm. is... A really challenging thing to recognize. It's kind of like I, I think for me, I just had to recognize that the the quality that I was unconsciously looking for already existed before me, before anything I could do. Yeah, and it's. I mean, of course, this is really difficult to do, but just to actually trust that 
the thing that I feel responsible to generate is already there. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that doesn't even compute to me. I'm like, mm-mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. David, <laughs> do you feel like you have to generate everything? <laughs> no. uh, I feel like I have to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that sleep. too, but see, my sleep allows me to create value the next day. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, my sleep is just about sleeping. I can just be with the sleep. I know. Yeah, my David's sleep allows thing. him to allows him to sleep even more. <laughs> yes. I not watching a nine sleep is like watch. I mean, it. I consistently think Brian's dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I there's will poke pic- him there's- all the time. There are pictures of me. It's like a. It's funny because there's actually an energy around my sleep. I mean, and around my eating. There's like a. There's. It's like spiritual quality. There's a spiritual quality, and like people are. People take note of it, and they take pictures of me. They take pictures of me in my sleep. Yeah, because it's like definitely how that person. Is they really are asleep. there. They're like way in there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's immediate REM cycle, too. They just down oh, yeah. into it. It's gone. gone. <laughs> it's really impressive. I envy you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I remember in New Orleans, uh, you fucking snoring was just like <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he means you're welcome. You're, you're all welcome. <laughs> all right, we got to move to the next one. This is the uh, the giant question. I'm going to play the first minute, and then I'm going to skip to uh, about minute 12, where she actually has a question or uh, like a critique that John can respond to. Uh, and then she has some juicy comments about John's attractiveness. <laughs> okay, hello. Uh, let's start with the good parts. The good parts, uh, it was mostly a very good book. Um, I don't know if you're aware, all the um, the Enneagram Tumblr ate it up pretty much. What I liked is that it is the explanation is really fine, granular, um, built up from the ground up uh, with the mechanism behind it and drawing from a lot of different sources. It wasn't just some um, the vague association stuff. So you can, if you follow along with the reasoning, you can, I mean, a lot of it you can prove to yourself why it's true. You don't, you're not just doing this uh, repeating definitions. That is often what happens. One could tell that you had mostly compiled this data for your own use, um, for your like self-development type of thing. But it was formulated and structured in such a way that everybody, more or less everybody who could get a use of it can um, get the, the, the parts that they need. Okay, let me skip. Her accent is adorable. Yeah, she sounds like she's a, an assassin. Mm-hmm, I love it. So the one remaining nitpick that still stands that I have is that... The word you have the word individuation doing a lot of work. Like I think that could have used from like a crisp definition. Uh, what exactly you you mean by it? Okay, not all terms are 
precise, some work by the nature more associatively. Um, but I still think uh, that it would have been helpful to have at some point in the book uh, a definition or trying to hash out what individuation even means. Um, further thought. Uh, thought number one is that John on the on the cover picture, I assume it's also his painting. Um, the paintings are really cool, and uh, John looks kind of hot in that picture. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's not even the well the face is nice too, but like the the expression in the eyes is so <laughs> intense. Like <laughs> um, next point. <laughs> yeah, we'll just end it there. <laughs> she goes, um. <laughs> she thought about that quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> the expression uh, in the eyes, it's so intense. Um. Sexual <laughs> four, baby. Um, oh, man. Yeah, actually, I think that critique is very fair and very good. And. I do define individuation on page 93. Um, <laughs> say individuation is the maturation of consciousness, but that in itself probably needs more um, unpacking. I say individuation is the maturation of consciousness. It is the cultivation of essence from an unorganized but sensitive quality awareness into the concentration of a real individuality through the practice of self-remembering. So that's how I define individuation in the book. It's a development of essence such that the sense of our identity shifts from the patterns of the personality into essence, into a, an ongoing and collected sense of presence, uh, presence in all three centers, but it's beyond the three centers. And like the individuated, what I call conscious essence in the book, um, instead of essence is undifferentiated and unorganized, sort of something you get glimpses of through something um, textured and dynamic and collected and ever-present. Um, and that's not even, to get kind of more uh, fourth way-ish, that's not even actual conscious essence yet. That's a whole other thing. But, but to be conscious of essence's essence is individuation. And as essence as the center of identity and essence as separate from the machinations or patterns of the personality. I don't know if you guys, did you guys read chapter, I think it's chapter four. What, what, did you, what were y'all's impressions? I've not gotten that far yet. God that- damn it, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> the book is, I mean, I've heard people, multiple people say this. The book is really dense in the sense that to really take it in, I don't think it's something that you can really read all the way through without stopping and really like reconsidering your whole entire life, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I read it on, or I read part of it, started reading it on a plane and I definitely freaked people out because people were looking at me like, what the fuck is she reading? What do you mean? <laughs> the cover, the man. cover oh. on a plane. What's wrong with the cover? <laughs> it's spook spook. It's totally, totally normal. It's, it's a very, you know, Starbucks coffee fall. Yeah. Basic bitch type latte. of cover. Woman with a shaved head and all black reading on a red eye flight to Nashville. Yes, it's very normal. <laughs> so you look like a jihadist. Yeah, I, I <laughs> really? did. Yeah, definitely. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Good. I just, you know, I just wanted like, I just wanted my picture and uh, the cover or the my painting on it, and 
yeah, my my friend was helping me. Uh, she graphic designed the cover. She was like, "Make I'm gonna make your picture bigger." <laughs> it's a really I really love that artwork on the front personally. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's called Gestures Resonant with a Turn. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't finished the book because it's I mean, I mean I've I've been watching or reading parts of the book for over the last few years just helping edit it and stuff like that, but like reading it from front to cover or from beginning to end um it's going to take a while at least for me just because that's mm-hmm. just i don't read books that way and there's a lot of parts to chew on i don't even think i've read any any grant book all the way through because i generally read because i'm looking to learn something specific or i'm working through something so i'll right. read a couple chapters and i'll that'll t- take me you know a month or so to work it out and then come back to get the rest so it's yeah, I typically listen to books, so this is very different for me. <clears throat> I've been reading. I've been jumping around. I really, I don't know how to read a book straight through. <laughs> I, just don't, I don't have that as a function. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you were neglected so, as a child. Don't know how to. I read. was neglected. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, no, but also you've. Uh, I've had the the one of the old versions from about a year ago, you know, mm-hmm. and I've been, mm-hmm. I've skipped around on it um, for about the last year. So, but yeah, it's, uh, I do intend to go through it straight. So through. what we're saying, John, is we're wow. never going to finish your book. Wow. <laughs> None well, of my fucking podcast friends <laughs> have read my book. No, I know. I get it. And like, uh, it is like, I, I do feel like, and I did this somewhat intentionally but I didn't, I didn't want it to just be a skip around book. Cause like, I feel yeah. like, um, like, because the thesis is not, here's your type. Uh, yeah. the thesis is like, here's like what, in, like what inner work means relative to all this information. And, like, and it's so, building towards something. Right? right. Yeah. It's all building. So there's a, there's definite climax. So to speak. <laughs> right. And the other thing, just because we forgot to, to mention at the beginning, if you are reading or um, yeah, if you're reading John's book and even if you haven't finished, go to Amazon or wherever you bought the book and leave a review. Yes. Oh yeah. Thank leave you. Yeah. An awesome, think, awesome review. I think it's got like 39 at the moment. We should be able to get that to a hundred. We can, we can definitely do that over the next yeah, six yeah. months. For for anybody listening, that's like, Oh, I'll, I'll write a review. Like most people don't finish books and <laughs> don't get around to it. Like people are like, Oh, I'll do it when I finish the book. But but like you know, like five percent of people finish books. Yeah, just uh, do it today. Do it do today. It. And and a and a small thing goes a long way for me because no, like I'm not a famous author. Like nobody knows who the fuck I am. So like, people are looking at different books, and they see my cover, and they're like, all right, there's a few reviews or whatever, but it's they're all really good. Uh, I would appreciate. I mean, even if they're shit, write that too. I'm interested in that. But um, so far they're pretty good. Yeah, any just you don't even have to write a review. You can just leave a rating. Yeah, right. And yeah, that that helps. That helps a lot. Okay, next question. Hey, um, I have a question about instinct stacking and how um, it's determined. There's some portions in John's book where he um, relates certain stages of infant I'm wondering if in your research, John, if you found anything about why one instinct becomes dominant over the other two. Thanks so much. Bye. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know if that was just on 
my connection or there was a part for everybody where it was sort of like yeah it, yeah, I heard that. it yeah and, and the recording it, it there was a part that cut yeah. out but the general gist of the yeah. message is still there yeah okay so um yeah i talk a little bit about it in in chapter four also uh where i talk about how basically you know we are in in my airy fairy view we are born as essence <laughs> and like that a baby is not a a blank slate that there's qualities and i do think that we're um born as our type or at least born as the essential quality that will develop into the type when it becomes structured um and so i talk about in the book uh margaret Mahler's separation individuation which are distinct stages of um psychological birth that comes after physical birth in which the psychic structure of an infant starts to organize and develop and in response to what and why and how it coincides with these stages as well as Freud, Freudian psychosexual stages in terms of different uh, places or locations of libidinal energy and self-regulation and how those, are, those coincide with the psychological structures that develop. So before I blast, does anybody want <laughs> I mean, the the question is about like how do instinct stackings develop, or how do they come about to be that people have certain instinct stackings, right? Yeah. So I, the the short answer is I don't fucking know. You know, like <laughs> I I wish I did, and I wish we could do studies and all this kind of stuff, but I don't know even how I don't even know how something like a study could measure something like this. In your so, view, John, could it be inborn? I tend not to think so. I think it does have to do with um, it could either be something traumatic or something not necessarily traumatic, uh, but something that just makes a deep impression. And what I mean is like, you know, part of what uh, I talk about in the book is that early in life, uh, infancy and onward, there is a way that we are our attention is directed through our own bodies and through our, our parents directing us to self-regulate, to feed ourselves and to, to walk and move and explore and, and then gradually to experience ourselves as uh, social beings, as like mom, like it's called object constancy, like that mom is not an extension of me, but is her own person and how I have to relate to her as her own person. So I suspect that through these stages and through what was mirrored to us, that somehow certain phases where these instincts were coming into development and 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 coalescing, uh, we were either given there's either something traumatic or something like kind of reinforced or rewarded, maybe positively reinforced or negatively enforced. I'm not sure. Would it need to? I mean, need to is a subjective concept, but would it? essentially need to come together by roughly a certain age, you know, like by two years old or something like that? Yeah, I think so. There's a stage called object constancy that I spoke to. And part of uh, part of the separation individuation phases, there's something called optimal distance, which it's not really its own phase. It's, hmm. it's sort of the optimal distance is the kind of one of the one of the things that coincides with separate with with individuation, this different different terminology for individuation than we were previously right. speaking to. Mm -hmm. um, this is the individuation of the personality from a merged phase with, with mom and dad. Um, optimal distance is like when the kid starts, like the, the, the realization that the kid is separate from his or her parents 
and needs to find the appropriate way to relate to the parents. It's not going to overwhelm them and put off the parents, but it's also not going to overwhelm and override the kid's energy and brand new psychological boundary. And I talk about this as really like the formation or the, 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 the place where the social instinct really um, gets shaped in people. And I don't just mean dominant. Like I think, I think mm-hmm. this phase would be especially uh, a pertinent thing that would that, that a social type, for example, may be working out their whole lives. But I think like even as us, as all of us, except Nancy as social blinds, like this is also where our flavor of social instinct gets constellated. And so to give a, an example, I don't know if this is true. This is just my hunch. Like um, my mom is moody too. And my dad is a cartoonist and a, you know, five and six wing and, and funny and whatever. And so in my family, uh, humor and laughter is, is like, like, we don't, we were very, like, even though uh, there's only two, like, there's six of us, but there's only two social blinds, like, there's not a lot of social instinct in our family. And so, like, our, our primary means of communication has always been jokes. And so, I think for a moody, I hate everybody for, uh, I make a lot of jokes and, and resort to humor because that was sort of the model of the, so of, of social connection in my family uh-huh. and that that might be how I create optimal distance with like both my parental figures, but my parental figures is, you know, standing in for my relationship with the rest of the world, like the object right. relation. So <laughs> that's my sense. I think, I think separation of, I mean, I can go through it if you all want, but it's a whole thing. Uh, but also to the question of like age, when it probably solidifies. Probably two stacking. and a half, three. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> Interesting. I mean, we could definitely be born with it. But the thing is, is that essence is something spiritual. It's something not having to do with our bodies. And it does have something to do with our bodies, but it's like prior to bodies and independent of body uh, or can be independent of body. Whereas instinct is pure body. Mm. So we uh, develop instincts in order to navigate a body and to learn how to regulate a body. Like the reason that kids are so fucking miserable is because to be around because they're learning to regulate their instincts because they're new to a body. Mm. Whereas their, their love or their joy or their sorrow is so pure because those have a kind of, they reflect essence, you know, that there's something intrinsic about their beingness that's just coming through in a pure way that most adults do not have access to anymore. You know, it makes me wonder if maybe since there are so many self-pressed socials out in the world, it would make sense if there's part of the process of like being born through age two, because everybody kind of does the same thing and handles kids the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If that is why that's creating like a lot of self-pressed socials, if there's something in there, a process in there that's creating that instinct. Right. That's exactly like my thinking in terms of, you know, I, my, my uh, suspicion and observation that I've shared here before is that like, very cold climates, northern climates tend to have more self-pressed social, more sexual blindness. And, you know, in a colder climate, your your need to kind of like self-regulate in a kind of a tidy, autonomous way needs to happen faster because the pressures of the environment and the pressures of, you know, like if you live in a northern climate, you have to live in a box. You have to live in some <laughs> container of heat. So you have to learn how to like be contained. Whereas you go to like 
culture is closer to the equator, there's more obvious sexual instinct, even if it's not necessarily sexual dominant. You know, like uh, like Alexandra is is sexual blind, but she's Puerto Rican, and so I think that there's something there in terms of her uh, accessibility to the sexual instincts that you know is there. But like you know, going to all kinds of equatorial cultures, whether it's Puerto Rico or even even in Egypt, which I would say is a sexual blind culture, there's a sexual energy there, mm-hmm. um, on and on. So I think that uh, I think that there is more reinforcement of certain like. Oh, the kid's learning to feed his or herself. Like, oh, good job, little Nancy. You're good job, little John. You know, it's like, yeah, like that. That gets reinforced. Like autonomy, good. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in a more equatorial climate, um, who knows what? Like, like part of what I go into in my book is what I call instinctual resources, which are literal resources or abstract things like attraction or esteem, like social, self, sexual things. And so, like, if a kid in another culture is maybe like expressing, there's a phase called rapprochement that I think has to do with the sexual drive. And if there's a way that that is either rewarded or traumatized more, um, that may lead to a sexual type and working that thing out as as an adult or replaying that as an adult. And so like maybe like part of that phase of rapprochement is that the kid is trying to reestablish merging with mom or dad after they've separated. So trying to throw off psychological boundaries and their libidinal focus goes back to mom or dad um, after having been out in the world and trying to find their own autonomy. And so maybe at that time, sexual types, that was somehow reinforced in a positive way of like, oh, look, like, oh, look, at, look at how juicy he thinks mom is right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Something like that. I have no or, idea. Or just like excessive displays of, I don't know, just. Like in certain cultures, at least in, in Nigerian culture, I grew up in Nigeria, spent first 11 years of my life there. And I I distinctly remember as a very young child at the, um, they have these ceremonial dances where, uh, called masquerades, where people put on this monstrous kind of costume and they have these um, really colorful dances. And it just, it's something that just etches itself in your psyche if you see it at a very young age. And so in really warm climates, I think it's really encouraged that people get out and really physically express themselves to music, like dancing mm-hmm, mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. a circle is a, mm-hmm. a, is a big thing in a lot of cultures where it's warm enough to do that. And so from a very young age, I just, you know, just being wild uh, in terms of expressing yourself uh, is something that's more encouraged. And so I would imagine that in cultures that have that, like you look at Brazil, that they have carnival and. Um, shit like that where it's just sexual instinct even if if people are primarily sexual blind there's an overtone of this excessive pointless display that is just colorful (laughs) yeah right Mm -hmm. right so yeah that's why like there's all this fucking racism mixed in and stuff but uh, like a lot of shit you see like you know i was fascinated by fascists and neo-nazis and stuff like that for a while and uh you know, their, their bullshit about how, like, advanced Northern Europe is and how, like, primitive the rest, like, the equatorial climates are. And it's, like, it's just completely up to, first of all, bullshit. But second of all, <laughs> it's up to, like, like environmental pressures. There's nothing special. It's just, like, envi- like it's, it's the materialist mm-hmm. Marxist reading of things. It's just, like, certain, mater- certain material factors create and lead to certain material conditions. And so mm-hmm. that people work with and respond to and, and then express through culture. So I think that, yeah, like the, that I think it's, it's harder to find 
sexual type energy in northern climates and i think that's because it's doesn't make as much sense and would probably not be as encouraged or reinforced in those climates mm-hmm. hi there this is misha i use they them or he him pronouns and my question is around uh sexual instinct and like more around the loss of self um dissolving boundaries maybe even like reconstellating of the self which is archetypally found in sex and i really have appreciated y'all putting like sex back into the sexual instincts and really distinguishing it from social and i guess my question is more about distinguishing it from spiritual transcending of boundaries um i've worked with um, a lot of psychedelics and i'm wondering if i'm getting those sexual needs met through transcending like the ego boundaries also like in addition to sex and kink and all these other areas of crossing boundaries but also like yeah with spiritual ego dissolvey states and you know like we pursue essence through our instincts mistakenly pursue essence through our instincts and so that line feels a little blurry with the dissolving of the ego. Thanks, y'all. So the question is, what's the difference between the sexual, one of the, like, so in my book, I talk about instinctual needs being the, uh, the what the instincts or motivational drives to fulfill. And for the sexual instinct, it's sex, um, chemistry, and loss of self. And so Misha is asking, what's the difference between loss of self from a sexual instinct point of view and spiritual overcoming of boundaries, right? Yes. Um, I mean, that's a very good question. They're easily confused, especially if you, you know, people often look to their sexual instinct to do that and any in, to be a spiritual doorway and often mistakenly. Uh, any instinct can be kind of like leveraged into a, you could say like a spiritual experience or awakening. Um, but kind of think of it as a lateral versus vertical loss of self. So, like, um, part of the function of the loss of self and loss of boundaries for the sexual drive is to kind of be renewed, is to kind of be reconstituted and reconfigured so that you remain interesting. But also your whole, like, I mean, orgasm physiologically, like, regulates your nervous system and kind of changes your energy around. Um, But, you know, spirituality requires the development of being. Spirituality is not just the deconstruction of the ego and expecting something to be there. One of the kind of, um, you know, uh, negative impressions left by something like mainstream Christianity is that your soul is just waiting for you to uncover. And there is the potential for a soul, so to speak, but you got to build something. And so there's being and the the paradox of being and emptiness uh, are kind of like two sides of the same coin of essence. So uh, I think that a loss of self is a really necessary part that the sexual instinct can facilitate is like a really important instinctual uh, groundwork that can be used at higher and higher levels because like one of the things I see, for example, in the Gurdjieff work, um, which I would say there's not a lot of sexual energy in the Gurdjieff work or in terms of 
people who belong to group groups um is that there can be this like very rigid like sacred but kind of sto stodgy quality and so you can feel like a sort of lack of energy being pumped and so uh the the ability to kind of play with boundaries and to uh to not get too stagnant is really important part of the, what the sexual drive can bring to an inner practice. But some people use often, often, especially when you get into things like white people teaching Tantra, um, mistake sexual instinct for spirituality or as a, you know, and, and, and but done the right way, it can be an actual door. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that's an example of compartmentalized sexual. Yes. yes. You know, it's not, it's it's a, an event versus something that you can integrate in a moment-to-moment -moment experience. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. Okay, so um, on the EU website, there's a quote somewhere that says, um, so like, it's the instinct stack, sexual self-prez uses fitness for the purpose of being a sexual object. So I'm curious about how do folks who are sexual self-prez but who are bad at self-prez do this? Like when I think of self-pres and fitness, I think of like literal maintenance of the body, health level, what the body looks like. Um, I don't know. I think John talks about like working out and shit like that um, and that being important for attraction. But I'm curious about like people who are self sexual self-pres but who are garbage at self-pres stuff and not people like fit or good at maintaining the body. How do they still use the body for attraction strategies? Like if the literal physical body is garbage. Does fashion, for example, get used instead? Um, oh, yeah. So, like, does fashion get used, um, like, in lieu of fitness? And, like, is that still self-pres? Or does, like, something that a person like, literally does, like, creating something, is that still, like, a self-pres kind of attraction strategy? I think I'm just sort of I'm interested and curious about what specifically gets categorized as self-pres in service of the sexual. Um, and in attraction displays. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question, but like self-pres is much more than just fitness. So like, you know, I think sensuality, using sensuality and sexual and sexuality is like, in, like the body, buttering fruits, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, like actually like worshiping the body, um, mm -hmm. uh, getting interested in somebody's smell, their taste, you know, that kind of stuff. Like they're like how their, their skin tastes. Um, you know, and also like, yeah, like building something or like art or like some kind of di like display. Like, I mean, I would even argue that my book has a, a sexual self-pres uh, attraction hook piece that was like just right. like I couldn't I mean, I couldn't really make a choice to do something otherwise. But it's like, oh, I've done something. I've made an object that is a representation of my effort as an attraction piece. I'm not really like leaving that up to like my my charisma and my personality like a sexual social might i'm like here's a thing i did that represents something mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think like we said last week like you know sexual self-pred is is really embodying the sexual display embodying magnetism in skills and crafts things that you've created like here's a thing that's supposed to be magnetic whereas uh with social as a, a tool it's more like my my personality and my my uh <coughs> self-genre is something that can hook people mm -hmm. and like an exaggerated version would be say sculpture mm -hmm. you know what i mean like if because it's so self-prezzy and it's clay and it's objects and it's things and 
making something beautiful that's an attraction display that's a thing mm -hmm. as opposed to the personality. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so we have three more questions. They're just general pod questions, but they just need to be, mm -hmm. I think they're good ones that need to be addressed. So they're not about John's book, but. Hey, this isn't an Enneagram question, but um, could you guys put together a um, Spotify playlist of all of the songs at the end of your episode? Because I would definitely listen to the fuck out of that. And um, excellent taste in music. So just a request, not something I want on the pod, but thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. It already exists. <laughs> and it's uh, awesome. How do, how do people find it? So, yeah, the, if, if you want to find it, just Google Big Hormone Music Spotify. It's the Or you can just search on Spotify for Big Hormone Music. It's my account. I have a playlist with every song that I've used on the show. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for that question. Lots of people keep asking that, so it's good to just put this on the show that so people can know where to find it if they want it. That's kind um, of right. tasteful for the three yeah. picks. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, this is a question about typing. Hello. Um, I've been I'm a new listener, and I've I've been listening to your guys's podcast. You got um, Emika and David said that when you're typing someone, kind of the best way that you found to type them is to read their body energy. Um, and I'm a nine wing one. And with a 974 trifix. And I definitely pick up on people's energy, but I am not as comfortable typing people as you guys are. And I was just wondering if you guys could run through each type and kind of the energy that you get off of them that helps you type them. Thanks. Bye. So that would be a, a whole episode. And the short answer to that is Dark Arts Academy. We. We, um, if you have any questions about how we're typing people, you can listen to the episode that we, uh, myself, Joseph and David recorded on, um, I think you want to learn about typing or whatever the fuck I called it. Um, you can, yeah, if you're curious, just sign up for dark arts Academy. We do this every week and we do, you know, people that are of all the types and you can sort of watch how we're doing it and you can try to find your own way of recognizing the types. But I mean, you know, John's a hard type and Nancy's a hard type. And I think everyone has to find their own sort of internal map to recognize the types. But David and I are doing it from the from the body center. It would be a good uh, possible podcast unto itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when, when I'm dealing with typing people, I feel like I feel like I have to find what energy and where I feel it for each type. So I'd be interested to hear what you guys experience with different, because I bet it's different mm -hmm. for everybody. Joseph learned when we all hooked up and started working together, you know, he wanted to learn how to type and, and just picking up things from us. And he's got his own map. He's a social four. And there's a way that he can really tap into what people are presenting, like their the identity they're, they're putting out there that David and I are not paying attention to at all. And, right. you know, it's like everyone has their own internal bias that they're operating from in terms of typing, like you're going to notice certain things depending on what type you are. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a whole thing. I think we uh, our dark arts videos. I've been really helpful so, to a lot of people who want to figure that kind of stuff out. Here's another thing. And this is uh, something to pitch uh, is I started doing uh, these voiceover 
uh, videos where I'm taking people's typing videos that they turn into uh, Enneagram or Universe on our Facebook group and uh, doing kind of a play-by-play -play where I, um, you know, play the video, person says a few things, and then I stop it and I say what I'm seeing. And some of that is along those same lines of, you know, kind of energetic, picking up energetic signature and qualities like that that are kind of nuanced and and of course using my own body center style of picking up things and and so you get to hear that narrative and that's a new service that we have on enneagrammer.com it's like a follow-up service where you can have me narrate joseph might uh do the same thing here coming up soon as well so yeah, there you go. You get typed and you can hear David and his uh, mouth noises. <laughs> yes, which is very important. All right, so we have one last one, but it's kind of a big question. Question for the big hormone Enneagram. So I come in from a very relational lens in terms of looking at the relationship between people, how people interact. And I'm really curious about like what aspects of personality um, create and contribute to like easeful relations versus like you know some relationships with people you talk to it's just like hard like constantly misunderstanding each other other people it's like you're already on the same page and you don't even know how that happened and so I'm curious without oversimplifying of course because I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of diversity within each type, specific types can show up on, in many different ways, given, you know, instincts, trifixes, um, you know, person, uh, like the person's history and all of that. But with all that said, what can you say about how different types interact with and each other? And I have to say, I think one of the reasons I love this specific podcast so much is that I get to see in every episode the ways that you all interact with each other. And because you all seem to have already a certain sort of fondness for each other, um, there's like a realness with that. There's like a realness founded in love around the way you all see each other, um, see things similarly, differently. Like the really nitty gritty of like how you interact in all these tiny ways, how you navigate your, your own conversations together. And so I'm really curious about y'all's take on this. All right, thanks. So we just received our first question uh, of someone while they were having intercourse. <laughs> I know, I, I was so distracted. I was like, yeah, that was really God, distracting. Whoa. Yeah, I, I, I need to. I need to sign off and go be alone. <laughs> be alone. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, just it is how? A good question. Yeah, how do people relate, and what factors uh, influence how well people get along based on Enneagram stuff? Um, what do you think, Nancy? <laughs> me? Okay. Um, well, I think just like typologically speaking it's kind of easy to like pick out who's gonna rub each other the wrong way right and who's gonna get along you know I think that is kind of oversimplifying it but like you know I feel like each type kind of has their favorite type probably mm, yeah yeah like I I love me some female eights female eights are like my best friends and then give me a good nine and I'm just like <laughs> One thing that I've noticed is that all the closest people in my life 
had either either have a family member or some close connection to eight to an eight. And so there's some kind of frame of reference for that energy. And and so what I'm I'm realizing is that I think we do have favorite types, um, and it's individual, but it's also kind of like maybe you grew up with a certain mm-hmm. type and you get used to that. And and I didn't grow up with any sixes, but I've I've had a lot of sixes in my life. My partner is a six, and so there's a um there's an inherent chemistry that I have with sixes or just, you know, but then again, the reactive types all have an innate chemistry. So you can look at it that way. Um, but yeah, I think you can find a bridge into all the types. I mean, I mean, Nancy's a three and, and she's an assertive type and I, I can relate to her from the perspective of an, an assertive type. I can relate to David as a, um, as a body type and I can relate to John as having the same instinct stacking trifix and, um, reactive. So I, I think there's just, if you really wanted to, and if you had some sort of affinity with someone, you can find a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, into just about any type but she is she is right like sometimes when i interact with people for the first time like it's just awkward like it just doesn't vibe and my experience with that is it's other threes Mm -hmm. when i when i meet people and i'm just like it's like this halting like just the conversation doesn't work like i've experienced that mostly with threes i think i have friends of every type i think what I've noticed is that I have a lot of social self-presses and sexual self-presses in my life. And I think one of the things I've been like, sometimes I have reactions to social sexuals because I'll feel like they're not serious enough about the things I'm serious about. Like, like, and I don't know if a social sexual, I mean, it's not also, I have plenty of social sexual friends, but I've noticed like there's an instinctual reaction or repulsion to like, and we talked about this, I think the last podcast right. episode, but yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm like very serious about certain things. And sometimes I'll feel like there's a frivolity about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like humor and, and, and wildness. So like what I've noticed is I just don't like types. I, like, I don't even know it's a type thing. I just like people who can't hang. Like I like, like when people are like, when I'm making friends with somebody and they can take my sarcastic, dry, negative humor uh and not try to change it or like change the dynamic or like i don't feel like they're manipulating it to like lift it somehow like that mm, is cool mm-hmm. um but i always i always can feel when somebody is like 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 with, we talked about with like attachment types that need to get on the same page when like i'm not speaking singling out attachment types like if attachment type wants okay. lets me lets me stay on their own page <laughs> like it lets me stay on my page and i'm like fuck yeah but if this attachment type is like oh you need to come over here like I'm not I'm never going over there (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's the I think I think we can probably all four of us relate to the people being too positive irks us yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't make me I want I want some spicy sad up in here (laughs) yeah spicy sad uh humor (laughs) also um I don't want um to uh yeah too uh serious in a certain way like i want to be able to laugh at like and make mm-hmm. fun of sacred things yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know this was a question that got me into typology to begin with because i was watching my parents uh fight all the time and, and i started thinking of you know why the hell are they married and you know how how can i figure something out so that i don't end up with a partner that i, I fight with all the time 
And so just this question of why is it that you meet certain people and you're just immediately hit it off and it's certain people you meet and there's just a block and you that doesn't happen. Like, what's going on? I think, you know, Enneagram is part of it. But even if you have a favorite Enneagram type, you're you're going to meet people of that same Enneagram type who you just can't get along with. Totally. And so I think it's multiple things. I mean, you got cultural stuff. But one thing that, I mean, we might end up talking about at some point is I think people's cognitive styles is a big one. Mm, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. this podcast is very much um, intuitive, right-brained, um, kind of a always kind of trying to make connections between things. And so if you are hanging out with someone who's not doing speaking your language, even if they are a type that you like, um, it's just going to feel, it's still, I mean, you can still have a great relationship with that person, but I think there's an initial hurdle there. Um, and then, yeah, just, I think there are other factors beyond, beyond any gram type that can determine whether or not you get along with someone. And, and it, I mean, for me, for some reason, like if I hear someone's voice, the way they talk can really be, <laughs> can mm-hmm. be a real, like, Oh, I don't want to hear you talk about anything, you know? So it's, yeah. if if you're like really into fucking crypto, I hate you. If that makes sense to you, like I hate you because it's just like the, everybody I've ever seen that's like really into that shit is just like just un- intolerable for me. <laughs> if you're a crypto bro, get yeah, the fuck just, out. just like yeah, the blockchain bro. You know, I'm like fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. men in is... general just rub me the wrong way. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so why are you on this podcast? Mm, I still like attention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, mine is mine is uh, sexual instinct stuff. I'm, and I think it's partly my strange uh, upbringing, uh, or whatever you want to call what happened to me. <laughs> like when there's, um, and plus David's survival sexu- story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sexual middle and having a seven fix. Like if there's not some sex stuff happening kind of in some way, you know, kind of leaking into everything, then it's like, what are we even doing here? Why are we what what's what's happening or, or yeah, that's pretty you know, accurate? Yeah, it's just um and that's why my uh reflex often with sexual blinds is to is to force it on them you know Uh, and (laughs) and uh yeah so and then you know if that if they can withstand that then maybe there's a chance they're in yeah yeah you just gotta the key with david you gotta you know whip him back into place if he gets out of line just yeah but it's gonna come back because the trickster (laughs) does his thing oh yeah it's a give and take yeah ebb and you flow know, goes with the moon what i was thinking is a person who's asking this is probably not social blind and right there yeah. there is kind of like um a thing at least from my perspective as a social blind that you kind of automatically or innately just find your people that you chemically mix with it's just like oh we're made of the same chemicals like we can coexist and it'll all kind of create something interesting. And I guess it's like a shadow uh, social thing where it's like, you know, coming into the Enneagram, looking around, it's like, oh yeah, those guys are kind of like, I I feel like we are made up the same substance on some level. Like we fuck around and have humor, but we're really serious about 
the Enneagram <laughs> and it's 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 not really a conscious thought. It's like, oh yeah, that that's my type of person. I can I can talk to that person. I can we can create together and all kinds of stuff. And so I've kind of just viewed social that way my whole life. I just assume it's gonna happen if you put me in the same room or in the same space with uh someone who has a similar sensibility that we're just gonna hit it off somehow. So uh before we go, I just wanted to say that my soon-to-be sister-in-law said something really fucking funny today. Um that made me think of you guys. She said, Oh, well, if because I was talking about mixing my friend group at my wedding, and she said, Oh, well, you know, if they're all friends with you, then they'll totally get along with each other. And I just thought that was a very attachmenty <laughs> thing to say. Uh, so we'll just sit there in a corner. We're at our own table. Yeah, you will. <laughs> no. You mean they will get along with your other friends? Yeah. Yeah. Ha -ha. Yeah. <laughs> By the Jokes way, David, on you. I already have a I've already talked you up to one of my friends who's into older guys, so you're welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, you got the sexual crackle going. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, the only the only reason to go to a wedding is if there's the possibility of sex. I know. That's why yeah. I had to get someone so, for you. It's fine. I mean, I would never go to your wedding just for you, Nancy. No. Just to honor, <laughs> just to honor the glorious, uh, noble... Uh, vows and all of that bullshit. Nope. You're you're not important enough, Nancy, for all <laughs> I that. Know. You've got to bring know. the sex for him to be there. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. You know, there's plenty of it to go around. <laughs> oh yeah, we have to pick uh, who won the prize. Oh who, yeah. Who, yeah. What, are, what, what was our favorite? I think the the German person. Yeah. That's my vote anyway. Yeah. That's... Twenty minutes. I mean. Yeah. We gotta to give say. it to her. Composed and she had her some like actual podcast. critique too. Right. Like strong yeah. critique. She's the only one allowed to have a critique. <laughs> yeah. Find out German girl's email and I'll send her. I can just forward that email to John. And email. Oh, yeah, just, just forward that email to John. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> Thanks for all your uh, submissions, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye. All right. Bye. Later, y'all. Bye. Later. Bye.